Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan We are here to look at how we can optimize our health and be on the best path to make our health better. As a part of this, we have looked at many aspects of functional medicine and had many of the experts in this area uh, on the show. Today, we have a guest whom I consider one of the founding fathers of functional medicine, Dr. Michael Ash. Uh, Dr. Ash has been in clinical practice since 1982 as an osteopath and naturopath. Eventually, he built one of the largest integrative medicine clinics in the southwest of England. He retired from full-time practice in 2007 and now provides a specialized consulting service. He did uh, his first postgraduate training in functional medicine was in 1991, well before most of us were aware of this discipline, and he has used this model in patient care since that time. He's attended every functional medicine training in the U.S. every year and promotes functional medicine philosophy and practice through his regular international speaking events. He represents the IFM, which is the Institute for Functional Medicine in the U.K. and the European Union, as an IFM educator. For over 20 years, he specialized in the mucosal immune system, particularly related to the gastrointestinal tract, and has developed a refined number of effective clinical strategies to help us. He's contributed chapters to textbooks such as, and is the co-author of Nutrition and Mental Health, Biochemical Imbalances and Disease, Nutrition and Addiction, and has written many articles for peer-reviewed journals and field journals in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, he also provided clinical support for Doctor in the House, which is a BBC, that's a British Broadcasting Corporation, TV series that actually involves a doctor who goes into homes and, and it talks about functional medicine and how it can help the people. He's developed research projects in the field of mucosal immunology, food, consumer-related health foods, and fertilizer. He's a managing director of Nutrilink Limited. And he's a professional member of many scientific organizations related to nutrition, medicine, immunity, and health, etc. So welcome to our show, Dr. Ash. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Well, uh, just for our listeners who might not have heard uh, many shows before, what is functional medicine? Functional medicine is a term used to describe a series of principles and practices uh, which allow people from different disciplines to communicate in a uh, organized fashion around the personal needs of an individual seeking help to recover their health. And it employs many of the principles associated with um, techniques perhaps recognized as integrated medicine, ordinary medicine in terms of standard Western care, and also some of the more esoteric and slightly less well-known aspects of what used to be referred to as complementary or alternative medicine. So I like to think of functional medicine as a decoder. It provides a framework in which people from different disciplines can have a coherent communication with colleagues 
around the specific needs of the individual seeking healthcare. So I hear you say it's tailored to the individual and it's focused on looking underneath the hood to see what the underlying cause is rather than uh, looking for a symptom and trying to mask a symptom. Absolutely. And uh, if you like, that perhaps defines uh, very much the ethos, which is that root cause or originating triggers, or and for which, as you know, Susan, there are often more than one, provide opportunities for people to work back down the series of symptoms that someone presents when they come to see you to ask the question really why, where, when, and what. So we get to the point where rather than simply saying, here's a symptom suppressing intervention because we can control inflammation or pain, uh, or we can suppress some form of immune response, the question we try to ask ourselves all these times is why? And then we work back through that process. And in doing so, if you work on your own, um, the need to communicate with other people has really just been the voice in your own head. But if you work in the functional medicine principle, you're often utilizing skill sets from different disciplines and relating or communicating across different disciplines with people. And so that question becomes contextualized within a framework that makes that journey, if you like, that understanding about the individual coherent to everybody, including the person who's seeking help. And I think that's another redefining component is that functional medicine encourages a relationship between the healthcare provider and the person who's receiving that uh, intervention, treatment and advice so that there's a shared process of taking control of health, i.e. not simply becoming a passive recipient of an intervention, but becoming a participant in the recovery of health. And I think most people love to feel that they get some level of control, some level of understanding back about why they're not feeling very well. And functional medicine facilitates that very effectively. That is why we have the show to help empower the listener so they can take proactive uh, approaches in their health. But doesn't this imply that you can kind of get a feeling a decade or two decades before you, the doctor finds out you've got an issue? I think in principle, the answer to that question is yes. In practice, what tends to happen is people wait until they have uh, something that is either frustrated themselves through trying to resolve the issue themselves or frustrated often their primary healthcare provider or secondary healthcare provider as they start looking outside of the standardized models of healthcare that they perhaps feel have not been successful for them. Once they engage in that process of unwinding or unraveling as best they can uh, where they are today, the reverse of that, like the inversion process, means that you can start asking that very question you just said. What is it about the way that I am living today that might precipitate a risk based on my exposure to different triggers, my inherited risk for this factor, that I could change today? So part of that functional medicine dialogue is uh, restoration of health and then uh, a level of improvement to resist or perhaps provide a reduction, significant reduction in risk of developing another problem later. Well, my understanding is through various tests, such as the organic acid test, et cetera, you can find out as you're beginning to deviate from an optimal health path to see which way you're going. And so you can make corrections at a very early stage. This is why this area is so important. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and when you have, say, for example, your listeners are, engaged in 
a relationship with their health that's different than the majority. Uh, most people live in a degree of disorganized chaos around their health. It simply happens and they carry on until something appears to go wrong. And they often look for, I don't sure why it went wrong today. Whereas, as you've indicated, many things in the chronic ill health area are precipitated by a series of events, often over many, many years, sometimes even decades. And so where people have an understanding that interventions early on produces a return on investment, i.e. the cost of resisting or preventing ill health is far lower than the cost of recovering from ill health, is that they can ask those very questions. And there are a range of uh, investigative profiles that give you footprints, uh, indications where somebody may be progressing and that you're quite correct that simple interventions, relatively easy to do interventions can manifest as a change in that pattern so that those risks are either removed or significantly compressed. But in practice, a lot of people first come into contact with somebody who's trained in functional medicine because they've become very disorganized and lost and feel bereft of guidance around their own health care. And they arrive with the usual parcel of complex chronic health problems and then have to have that unpicked. But it fits at both ends of the spectrum. And I think that's what's really a wonderful thing about this model is it's very, very flexible. It's very plastic in how we can apply it. And really, there's very few conditions, particularly within the chronic ill health conditions, that the principles of functional medicine can't be applied in a very beneficial and effective way. Now, many of our speakers have spoken about gut health and the human microbiota. Uh, So do you think that is a very important place that we should start looking? Without question, it lends itself extremely well to uh, a common point of entry. If we consider that um, chronic ill health, people who present with cardiovascular problems, diabetes, changes in cognition, skin conditions, fatigue-related problems, there are three events primarily that take place. That's a change in immune function, a, a defensive response. There's an increase in inflammation, which is a consequence of uh, the body reacting to different challenges and something we call oxidative stress, which is where a normal process of the collapse of various molecules through the process of living uh, takes place within a format that's far more complicated than the process of elimination can manage. So we have three integrated consequences of a disturbance to human health and human function. And functional medicine allows us that opportunity to target where we might want to intervene. And the gastrointestinal tract offers for us a remarkable repository of information exchange. And the reason it does is because it's the largest piece of our body in terms of tissue that comes into contact with that which is not us. It also comes into contact with that which is us, but in terms of what we inhale, drink, and and eat, the tissues in the gastrointestinal tract are highly specialized to facilitate a change between the item that arrives and that which becomes us. And I think you may well have heard me mention this before, but statistically, in a single day, the gastrointestinal's immune system, that which you alluded to at the beginning is called the mucosal immune system, makes more immunological decisions than the remaining part of the body's immune system does in your lifetime. 
And in order for that to happen, there's a massive investment of energy around the gastrointestinal tract. And equally, there's a historical relationship, if you like a simple way of thinking about this is that we have a series of cells or organisms that reside within our gastrointestinal tract, which are roughly equivalent in number to the number of cells we have in us as a human. And that dynamic relates to a long-established, evolved relationship that means that we utilize those organisms to do tasks for us that we perhaps have lost the enthusiasm for. And I sometimes describe this as we have staff to which we give them employment jobs that the rest of the team aren't very interested in doing. But if we treat our staff badly, if we don't feed them appropriately, if we starve them of what we would say was a salary, but in our terms is appropriate nutrient intake, if we give them an environment in which they're being toxicologically challenged, either through the use of drugs or uh, behavior patterns that challenge their ability to remain coherent and functional, they go on strike or they change their working practices. And the consequence of that is that we, as the other partners relationship, have to accommodate their bad behavior. And uh, I think pure economics suggests to us that if we have unhappy, disaffected, poorly nourished and badly treated staff, we can't expect to get a, a business to work effectively. And in very simple terms, that's what happens within our gastrointestinal tract when we treat it badly. Yes, we've had many speakers, such as Dr. Pajani, et cetera, who have discussed that when our gut mucosa and the bacteria are not properly balanced, we can have a permeable gut, and this leads to uh, autoimmune disease and the regular cast of characters, oxidative stress and inflammation, as Dr. Ash mentioned. So the gut is very intimately connected with the rest of the body, including the brain? Yes, there's a constant dialogue that takes place between the upper center of functionality, which is the brain, and the lower center of functionality, which is the gastrointestinal tract. And we have a number of uh, routes for communication between neurological endocrine, which is a hormonal, uh, and of course, immunological. And so this dialogue takes place on a continuous basis. And you mentioned a change in barrier quality or a change in the permeability of the gastrointestinal tract with Dr. Vajdani. And one of the things that is particularly important in terms of the brain and the gastrointestinal tract operating in a coherent manner with each other is that if the barrier, that single cell tissue lining of the gastrointestinal tract becomes changed in the way that it excludes or includes certain food products or certain organisms, you can see a reciprocal change in the barrier that prevents the migration of particulates across what we call the blood-brain barrier. So there's a small uh, collection of tissues that try to prevent the migration into the brain tissue of larger molecular weight compounds. And when the gut becomes damaged or permeabilized, we see a reciprocal reflection in the uh, blood-brain barrier, and that can also precipitate a risk for changes in immunological responses in the brain. And those same three mechanisms that we briefly touched on, inflammation, immune disturbance, and oxidation, then takes place in the sensitized immune and neural tissues inside the gastrointestinal, sorry, inside the, uh, inside the brain, and that can lead to changes in behavior, changes in mood and affect. So uh, you alluded to some of my work and Almost uh, 20, 22 years ago, um, 
we first started doing research on the role of changes in neurodevelopmental uh, events, particularly within the autistic spectrum and the relationship to altered immune response in the gastrointestinal tract. And then for almost 15 years, we continue to explore the relationship between uh, gastrointestinal dysbiotic events, that means changes in the ecological ratio of the organisms inside the gut and their subsequent compounds, metabolic byproducts, or uh, are rather more uh, succinctly referred to as short-chain fatty acids and associated immunological uh, particulates, and how those relationships and those ratios would change and behavior would either worsen or improve. And so uh, if we step back a little bit from uh, a subset of individuals who have often quite profound changes in their behavior and their functionality, to a more subtle level where we have a massively significant problem in terms of low-grade depression, affect, or mood disturbances. There's a very close association between restoration of functionality or health and restoration of gastrointestinal health and function. And the key for us, as I suspect we're going to be moving towards, is how we entertain the immune system in the gastrointestinal tract depends extensively on what it is that we choose to consume. And not only what we choose to consume, but what is in the food that we choose to consume. Uh, and because the compounds present in the food uh, are biologically recognized by very key receptors inside the gut. Wow, this is very interesting. Just to uh, summarize that if we have an unhealthy gut, this affects the protective barrier in the brain and if that is permeable or leaky unwanted things can go into the brain leading to uh, anxiety uh, depression it can play a role in autism and it could probably set up a chain of reaction to neurodegeneration in places we don't want to go so this is hugely important folks but you're talking about the food that we eat and I notice the food that we eat is becoming increasingly less healthy has less fewer nutrients in it the soil has fewer nutrients so first uh, what can you tell us what the phytobiome is sure and I think this is something that perhaps if I contextualize uh, the question because I think for your listeners and also for probably 99% of physicians that may hear this for the first time as well, is at the very beginning of this program, you referred to something called the microbiome, which is the collection of organisms present in the gastrointestinal tract and their total genomic content, which is the microbiome. That includes things like fungi, bacteria, and viruses. Most of us are familiar with the idea that the bacteria, at least, have reasonably well understood principles of function and we can measure some of those and we can track them and that there's a very variation between each of us and those variations have an impact on how we survive and function as a human. If we step back on the same mechanism that we were looking at a moment ago, which is we're asking the questions, what, why, where and when did something happen to an individual? Part of that journey is going to be what does somebody eat? Why do they eat it and where is it derived from? And that's taken me over the last five years, maybe six years now, uh, of following my research from immunology and microbiology and, and human health. I've moved into the idea that there is a relationship between the food that we consume and the 
immune receptors in our gut because of something called secondary metabolites. And secondary metabolites are these small chemicals produced by plants as a defensive mechanism that we convert through the organisms live inside of our gastrointestinal tract into a series of messengers that translate into different types of defense and health generating events inside our gut. Now, the phytobiome is a word that may be new to many, but it is very similar in concept. And the phytobiome relates to the environment within the soil, that is the ecological mix or biodiversity within the soil in which the plant is growing, and the environment around the soil and around those plants. And when we dip into the, a healthy soil, we'll see a similar level of complexity of organisms as we do within our gastrointestinal tract. And to maintain or to generate soil bi biodiversity so that we have a wide range of capability in the same way as we do within a healthy human's gastrointestinal tract, we need to ensure that those organisms are fed in a similar way to those which are present inside our gut. The consequences of a well-fed phytobiome, and in particular, the bacteria, the nematodes, and the fungi that live within inside this soil, is that plants receive a different set of signals than those that are grown in land that is predominantly fed with either just nitrogen, potassium, and phosphate, or has become biologically less diverse over a period of time. And unfortunately, that equates to almost all farmed land uh, in the world these days. And what's terribly exciting for me, Susan, and I, I hope you'll, you'll share some of this uh, interest, is that if we take a very simple concept and we say that we're going to grow a vegetable and we can put that vegetable into soil which is equivalently healthy to somebody with a very healthy ecosystem inside the gastrointestinal tract, plants don't like to be eaten. And uh, in order to prevent themselves being eaten, they release a series of compounds, some of which are bitter, some of which are... Uh, less obvious to taste, some of which are poisonous to us. But the majority of them are not. They are simply uh, a variety of different types of compounds which extract from the soil chemicals delivered to them by organisms that live in that soil. They maintain a robust resistance to challenges from their environment. And when we consume those, we release those chemicals. And we have spent millions of years evolving receptors that recognize those chemicals to trigger a wide range of health-generating events inside our gastrointestinal tract, which then migrate to every tissue in our body. So if we were to ask the question, what is medicine ultimately at the end of the day? I'd say that medicine is really about farming. We farm the organisms inside our gut and we rely on farming the plants that we consume, as well as the animals that eat those plants, to deliver a series of mechanisms to the organisms that live inside of our body to generate and engender a long and healthy and capable life. And if we farm both the organisms in our gut and in our land badly, the outcome is an increased risk for chronic and often degrading disease. Uh, that's pretty scary because to supply food to a large number of people, uh, the soil has to be continually reused. There's probably fertilizers that are not particularly human-friendly, not to mention glyphosate. 
how do we do this on a large scale? We have about two minutes before the break. So if you could begin to touch on that. We have to ask a different question, Susan. Um, we are faced with a growing human population and the consequence of that is that there's a requirement to increase food production by about 2.5% per year for the next 30 years. And soil production or soil productivity is flatlining, utilizing standard MPK fertilizers. The consequence of using relatively simple but productive fertilizers are that plants become less immunologically capable of defending themselves. And as you've hinted at, what happens is we end up becoming more dependent upon uh, herbicides and fungicides and other types of chemicals to control pests. So I'll give you, after the break, I'll give you some indications of what type of things can be done and, and how I see things moving forward to try and resolve that in the future. That is very important. So on that note, we will go to our break now. And after the break, we'll return with more information. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighouse for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. So we're learning about, you know, it's important to find the cause of what's going on with us. Uh, We're learning that uh, the usual culprits, oxidative stress, immune dysfunction, and inflammation are the usual causes of diseases. For example, Dr. Houston mentioned that these are the three predictable reactions of any 
blood vessel, regardless of what the cause is, these are the things that cause our heart disease. And it probably is the same for kidney disease and uh, vessel disease in the brain, etc. So these are hugely important. But we're going to a topic that not many people are looking at is the health of our soil. And if our soil is being depleted and our uh, plants are being challenged, we're not going to get the nutrition we need to help uh, get us well and deal with the oxidative stress, immune dysfunction, and inflammation. So uh, coming back, Dr. Ash, what can we do about this since we're going to need food produced on a large scale? Well, I think you've absolutely uh, covered the key point there. You know, we're losing soils and soil biodiversity at a pace that's unprecedented. And that has substantial uh, negative ramifications on human health globally. And what I'm hoping we're gonna try and provide contextually today is a chance for people to recognize that the soil biodiversity is a massively underutilized resource for achieving sustainability. Uh, By that I mean human sustainability on this planet and also sustainable health, because if we don't improve and or at least res- contain, retain and improve soils, food security, disease control, water and air quality uh, are all going to decline because biodiversity in soils is connected to all life and it provides a broader and very fundamental ecological foundation for working with all other disciplines to improve human health. And in much the way as we started this program by saying the gastrointestinal tract often presents for us a common point of intervention for multiple disturbances or disruptions of human health. I wanted to see if I could go back a little bit further down the chain. And my view is that we should be regarding soils with the same uh, equivalent level of enthusiasm for improving health, but on a bigger scale. And as a physician and any physicians um, involved in uh, trying to look a little bit beyond short-term interventions and rescue work, agroecological practices that enhance the soil organic matter content and associated biodiversity promotes an easy or improved availability of nutrients. It also helps to uh, prevent wash-off and improve uh, water infiltration. And it gives us a chance to crop systems with things like reduced tillage and improved rotation, improved crop cover, etc., So we reduce the need for chemical application onto land. And one of the challenges that you've alluded to is that the perception is that without the increased use of either GM crops or at the use of specialized seeds, without the use of other agents, which are predominantly agrochemical based agents, we can't meet or satisfy the rate at which the population of this plant is growing. And I say that's a message that's sold where there's a predominantly commercial merit to the message. But the message I want to say is more health-oriented. And that is that we can actually feed ourselves on the amount of land that we have currently available now. In fact, we could feed ourselves on less land if we farmed it in a different way. And so one of the key things to perhaps take away from this conversation is that You and I, Susan, are effectively two-legged carbon chains, and soils are a rich repository of carbon, and ultimately, we become the soil in which the plants we eat grow. And the reason for this is that we have to provide 
to soil certain key nutrients, very similar to those which you and I consume either through supplements or through uh, foods that we ingest. The organisms in the soil require these carbon compounds, of which there are thousands, but which are being lost dramatically, in order to translate through the plant a series of molecular messengers that ultimately restore and also prevent illness. So if we are going to be really good at making functional medicine work on a scale beyond that that an individual practitioner can deliver or even a group of practitioners can deliver, we should apply some of the same enthusiasm we have for the microbiome or the microbiota within inside of us to that within the soil. And they require similar type of things, but they require them in a different, different delivery system. So I've been very fortunate for the last few years as part of my work and, and research, I've been involved in the evolution of a new type of fertilizer, uh, a type of fertilizer that has uh, an enormous impact on soil quality and an impact on plant uh, resilience and plant health, and particularly where the soil has become depleted. And you might be surprised, although you might not be because you've done some work in this area, but around 70% of the soils that we use globally to grow plants for both animal and human consumption are nutritionally depleted. And in particular, in the last 50 years, we've seen a significant drop-off in the way that nutrient content in soil has been replenished. Plus, we lose nutrients, uh, particularly nitrogen and phosphate, to either environmental loss, which contributes significantly to airborne pollutants, and we lose it to water, which leads to water pollution and uh, the subsequent loss of valuable potable waters. So farming, unfortunately, has ended up becoming a major contributor to the generation of ill health through the practices that have been employed to try and satisfy a growing population, utilizing a methodology that emerged from the Second World War in which post the need for producing large quantities of arms and uh, munitions, those materials were translated into the use for primary uh, triggers for plant growth. And then subsequently, a biological extraction, or sorry, um, an energy extraction system where nitrogen is pulled from the air and bound in order to produce urea, which is utilized for plants, called the Haber-Bosch, meant that we could produce nitrogen relatively efficiently in large quantities and then put that onto the ground to stimulate plant growth. Now, you may be aware of this, or your listeners, I suspect, won't be aware of this, but the Haber-Bosch process, which is a post-Second World War German invention, really has ensured that the population around the world can continue to be fed. But it has a huge cost. It, the Haber-Bosch process consumes roughly 1% of all the global energy produced, and then 50% of what it's produced is lost to atmosphere when it's put onto the ground or lost to waterways. So we have this massive carbon consumption without restitution. So we set about trying to look about how we could restore carbon compounds to soils in a delivery mechanism that was uniquely favorable for the biodiverse organisms present in the soil for two things. One is to increase the generation of the organisms that are present in the soil and make them more viable. And secondly, to capture uh, contaminants and other nutrients that were previously being lost to evaporation or being uh, lost for a process of, uh, of what we call tillage or, or soil turnover. Now, we have spent a long time working on this, and one of the things we identified was that a lot of the animals that enter the food chain 
carry with them a tremendous amount of carbon compounds, which are traditionally lost through a burning process. And so we've developed a process where we capture these uh, on site at abattoirs and then through a specialized process, extract and break down the compounds present in animal byproducts and then bind those with other distressed chemicals extracted from other industry to produce the first novel fertilizer for the last 35 years. And that comes with a delivery system that ensures a slow release of these nutrients, micronutrients, roughly 50 different nutrients are present, but a very high concentration of what we call dissolvable organic solids. Now, the reason I'm giving you a little bit of background there is because you raise a very good question, which is doing good work on a single farm under an organic farming practices is extremely commendable, but it's very difficult to translate that across massive scale in order that soil can be restituted and recovered so that plants need less fertilizer, need less herbicides and less pesticides unless you can deliver something that has a continuous access to put it back into the market. And so we spent a long time working with uh, some big commercial partners to see how ultimately that could end up being delivered in a scale that would operate to satisfy both nutrient recovery, soil restitution, and also improve plant quality. Because if we consume something that is nutrient-dense, immunologically attractive to the organs that live inside of us, we see this chain of evolution. So, Susan, I make your soil in your home, for example, carbon-rich, biologically more diverse, and you and I have quite unique ecosystems inside our gut, and we equally have unique ecosystems in our gardens, but we provide a raw material. It's like a growth medium for these organisms, which then take the compounds that have been pre-digested for them, deliver them to the root. The root manufactures a variety of what we call secondary metabolites, which includes all of these immune defense molecules, because as I said before, plants generally don't like to be eaten. There are a few that produce compounds that, of course, are sweet in flavor, but most don't. And just like we know lots of our patients don't like eating plants either, the reason they do this is to effectively live a, a satisfactory life to senescence and then fall into the ground and become carbon to be reabsorbed later. But if we make those compounds vitally information-rich for the organisms inside our gut, they too thrive. They will also diversify, and the more biodiversity we have inside our gut, the more efficient we are at becoming metabolically neutral, that is maintaining a healthy metabolic response to triggers, the more efficient we are at removing toxins and compounds present in our atmosphere and other types of exposures that we have, and the more immunological competent and tolerant, which is a term we use in immunology to describe a state of uh, immunological health inside a human or any mammal. And this journey eventually manifests as a series of cellular changes inside of us, which over time should generate and continue to generate for us a long and healthy life so that we don't simply have an extended time frame on this planet through the constant suppression of unpleasant symptomology, but that we can live a, a healthy, wealthy, and, uh, and by which I mean a healthy and wealthy in terms of capability life. For as long as we it can. So. Very exciting. I mean, the fact that we can replenish our soils and have plants that have more nutrition in them, and that will help us with our health and help our 
uh, microbiome. Sounds very exciting. Now, will this fertilizer be commercially available to many people? And will the farmer who's just trying to make a living be motivated to use this fertilizer? Two fantastically insightful questions. And the first one is, um, yes, that process is uh, about to start rolling out through a series of large commercial partners. And over the next few years, you'll see that migrating globally so that, yes, those fertilizers will uh, eventually become available wherever there's a um, an animal source of material. So whether there are avatars operating um, these fertilizers can be manufactured. And then we refer to this as what we call the grass-to-grass system. So we capture nutrients that were going to be previously lost with the animal and return them to the soil in a format that's more biologically available for the soil so that they get reintroduced. And our, we do a lot of calculative work over here with a big research institute that we work with. Um, we estimate, for example, in the UK, it could be possible to become what is known as phosphate self-sufficient. That would mean no more phosphate need to be introduced into the farming world. And phosphate is a diminishing resource. Without phosphate, we will die. And uh, phosphate stores are being depleted very quickly or are contaminated with cadmium. Uh, This way you lose all contamination, which is another issue that you and I, I know, share some concerns around, which is that uh, foods become contaminated not just with synthetic compounds, but also with compounds that are extracted from the earth in order to provide these raw materials. And the second question, which is fundamental, uh, and you know, you can make the most marvelous thing in the world and it can sound extremely impressive, but if no one can afford to use it, it's uh, uh, a waste of time. So the, uh, the process of putting this into uh, commercial use is that it's very compatible. Uh, in fact, slightly uh, more economically favorable than existing fertilizers. Um, and in part, that's because you're able to produce this material regionally, so you can customize it, you can change the blending to satisfy regional needs. Uh, but the fundamental element at the end of the day is if farmers are dissuaded from using it on the basis of cost, then it's a waste of time putting all these years of work into developing something that would provide a satisfactory route to improvement of soil health and human health. So, yes, it is commercially uh, acceptable. It is potential for expansion. It's not going to happen next week, but over the next few years, you'll see these, uh, these opportunities grow. It sounds very exciting. Now, I might be ignorant here, but I understand that a healthy seed supply is becoming increasingly difficult to find. For example, the genetically modified plants, I understand, do not have seeds so that you can reproduce. So uh, is that going to be a problem with a lot of people who are growing uh, genetically modified foods? That's a slightly different um, series of questions. So you have the the two components that have to come together. You, You need to provide a medium, which is the soil in which a plant can grow. And then, of course, we have to have a seed in order that these plants can become replicated and there's been a strong move for seed banking to be gradually contained by just a few companies. And the rationale behind this is, as I said to you early on, is commercial. It isn't driven primarily by the generation of a healthy human food supply, albeit that that is a component of the argument that comes with holding seed banks within a small group of individuals. You refer to them as uh, heritage or heirloom seeds uh, in the, U- in the U.S., uh, in the U.K., these are uh, generally regarded as um, seed plants that have a long historical use. And obviously, 
agricultural development within the UK has been going on for far longer within the US. And to a large extent in the UK, uh, we still have predominantly small farms. Um, there are some 55,000 farms in the UK and something like 70% of those have less than 80 to 90 hectares or 200 acres. So your vision in terms of how, what you see farming within the US is slightly different than that which we see within the UK and indeed large parts of the EU, where people still have access to their own seeds, they still have access to their own self-replication, albeit that there's a commercial intent to try and drive that away. Uh, in the US, you've been dragged circumstantially into large, often monocrop cultures, which are unsustainable over time, uh, and seed control by uh, large players. Now, that is a slightly, let's say, that's both a political and an economic discussion. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that whatever you plant in soil that is healthier, you'll get a better crop. But if you diminish the choice of plants in exactly the way that we decrease the choice of organisms present in humans and soil, the cost of that is going to be the subsequent loss of diversity. And with loss of diversity becomes less plasticity. And by that, I mean we have less adaptability. Uh, and humans have survived as long as we have because we're exceptionally adaptable systems. Um, but we've lost about 40, sometimes maybe as much as 50% of our biological diversity within a site like gastrointestinal tract over the last 100 to maybe 200 years. And the cost for that is now being reaped. We are experiencing a tsunami of chronic ill health, and a large number of those are, are linked to a change in the quality of our immune system inside a gastrointestinal tract. So as I indicated, we step back and look at the planet, and we ask the same question. We are robbing ourselves of biodiversity, and with that, we lose plasticity. This sort of makes me want to move to the UK because I understand in the US is glyphosate just in about all of our food, including organic food. Uh, we've had speakers discuss the adverse health effects of glyphosate, and we pass a law that we can't even find out if uh, we're eating this stuff. So it sounds, yeah, the UK sounds, and the EU sound like utopia at the moment. Well, you know, it, it's fascinating to me um, in that I, I kind of have for the last few years stood with a foot in a number of different camps. I've always been someone who's uh, crossed over various disciplines in order to build a, a range of uh, both research studies and, and interventions. And most of the time I'm, I, I meet scientists who specialize in one area. They specialize in microbiology, they specialize in immunology, or they specialize in uh, plant growth, or they specialize in some form of uh, diversity. And what you're saying is that you're seeing some degree of top-down suppression of choice and diversity within food production. And the arguments for that are essentially reasonably economically sound, which is that you need to produce a large quantity of food, and the easiest way to do this is to manufacture or to grow food over large surfaces, and that way we can end up with appropriate quantities. But to do that, you reduce the amount of food that you, in terms of range of foods that you produce. Now, if we were just to ask a slightly simple question, but I think one that's very compelling is that if we look to Tanzania, which is where the Hadza tribe, who are one of the world's last pretty efficient nomadic, nomadic sorry, um, and hunter-gatherer tribes live, and they move constantly, they have a range during their entire lifetime, it's been estimated they consume 8,000 different uh, plants and food groups. 
by you know, different animals and different plants. Whereas if you go to Italy or any European country, not the US, I'm just pointing across to where you think utopia is currently, most people survive on six common foods, so wheat and soy, etc. Now, the cost of being able to feed everybody, utilizing the mechanisms that have been employed over the last 50 years, is that we've been driven towards the generation of commonly occurring foods, corn, soy, wheat, barley, etc., because we've been able to modify them through either specific gene modification or through hybridization so they become more resilient. They get fed a certain type of food, which now means their yields are dropping off or staying the same because the soils are coming depleted. And the loss of diversity in terms of food choice has been reflected in the fact that we now have a generation after generation in which the organisms within the gut are also becoming less plastic. They have less capacity, what we call redundancy. They have less ability to pass over a skill set from their system to another bacterial system because there's less gene transfer, there's less metabolic flexibility. And the cost of that is reflected within an increased propensity towards oxidation, immune stimulation, inflammation, which is the underlying cause of, as you indicated, the majority of all chronic ill health. So we are perpetuating a series of patterns of behavior that are fundamentally contributing to a less capable population to survive. And recently in the UK, you may well have seen there was a study came out showing that the fertility of males within the UK and indeed large numbers of the European countries has declined by 50% in the last 20 years. Sperm counts are dropping, sperm motility is becoming less efficient. And these are the sort of things that epidemiologists love to try and tie into why and what may be happening. But I think it's pretty compelling that everywhere we look, that common denomination is that what we consume, what we choose to eat, and the value of what we choose to eat impact every single system that operates in our body, including fertilization, the ability to continue to conceive. And the cost of doing so is that we use resources elsewhere in our body uh, to facilitate that. And the resulting impact is a change in human health again. So, yes, you're always welcome to come here, Susan, but I don't want you to arrive. Well, I am in, here. In I just don't want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we had a speaker, uh, Guy Hudson, last week, and we were discussing the effects of putting cell phones in pockets, and that studies have shown have decreased the motility and the function of sperm and have increased oxidative stress in them and have contributed to the fertility problems. I mean, it doesn't mean that that's a cause. It might be an association. But with all these uh, toxic things we have in our environment, including pollution, uh, toxins, bad diet, I mean, there's a lot of things that could set off this chain of reactions, which, as Dr. Ash has mentioned, leads to the usual culprits of oxidative stress, immune dysfunction, and inflammation that lead us down these pathways of chronic diseases, which are increasing massively. So in our last three and a half minutes, Dr. Ash, would you like to summarize, make any additional points, and let our audience know how to get in touch with you? I'll do, I'll do my best. So... If, if we could leave with a couple of, of takeaways today, it is that we are unique inside us in terms of the organisms that are present inside of us, just as soils are unique. And one of the biggest influences on human health is geography. Where you are born and where you live used to predict what you ate. Because traditionally, you ate fairly locally. There wasn't the food chains or the cold chains that exist now that allow us to move food around the world. 
So two things have happened. One, we've become slightly disassociated by seasonality. And secondly, we've become disassociated by regionality. Now, one of the indications in many works that are coming out now is that eating seasonally and eating regionally from soils that are ideally as healthy as possible confers a geographical immunological advantage to individuals. So I'd say that try to find plants that are grown locally to you, eat them within season, try to find them where they're grown with as little external pressures on them as possible. You've indicated, Susan, it's not possible to find these entirely without some level of contamination, but they can be kept to a minimum. And if they're biologically active plants, they facilitate detoxification and removal of those compounds anyway. The second thing is that the change inside of us, just like the change inside of the soils, is recoverable. And if we start to think that we're eating not just for one, but we're eating for trillions each time, that the food choices we make over a lifetime make a big difference to how our future, that is the years to come, and those years which some people have lost, of course, because they've been feeling ill during this time, can be recovered or preserved. And then thirdly, the fundamental issue here is that eating more vegetables have two knock-on effects. One is that we consume fiber and we consume biological compounds that confer an advantage to reducing inflammation, but also it preserves water, it preserves soils. And it's not to say you don't eat meat at all, but if we could say anything at all, going ahead, if we're going to feed ourselves healthily and successfully, outside of what I've already indicated to eating more plants and less meat and less fish because those are resources that consume an enormous amount of energy and, and have a high cost to us both in terms of raw materials and environmental pollutants. Uh, then eating more vegetables is one of the single tiny but nonetheless important events that you or decisions that humans can make. And quickly, can you tell folks how to get a hold of you if, if you wish? Well, I think uh, not so much get a hold of me, but they can read more about these sort of things on my educational website, which is clinicaleducation.org. Uh, there are over a thousand articles I've written there, and I, keep, I write pretty regularly on different subjects, and they can perhaps investigate that site to and, uh, learn more. And we're coming to an end now, so I encourage the listener to learn about health, learn about healthy food, find out the, a good diet and vegetables. Do what you can, work with your practitioners so you can help yourself and others, and be well. we got the power to change the world. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.